welcome to another Healing Conversation brought to you by AcousticHealth.com. I'm Loren Gailey, and today we have a very special conversation. We're going to be talking about sound healing, specifically sacred sound created, in this case, with Himalayan instruments like gongs, Tibetan singing bowls, and tingshas. These were used by, and they are used by Buddhists and other people around the world, and they come from Tibet and Nepal. This is known as vibrational healing, and we're going to talk about that today with my guest, sound pioneer Richard Rudis. He's a recording artist and founder of Sacred Sounds Workshops, and his website is sacredsoundgongbath.com. Richard is a student of Buddhism, and his Buddhist name is Karma Sonam Dorje. He's also currently on tour here in Colorado with his gong bath, and in it, he creates transformational waves of sound bathing for every person in the room, and we experienced this last night, and I'm going to repeat what he describes as rising and falling rhythms, tonalities, and vibrations of a huge earth gong that's tuned to the sounds of the primordial ohm, the universal chord, the vibrational signature of our Mother Earth, Gaia, as it dances with our sun. So I would like to give a warm welcome to you, Richard Rudis. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for, for, for having me. Well, I mentioned a little bit about this transformational experience that we had last night. So while I'm going to get in and ask you how you got started, and we can learn about the technicality of the instruments and the sacredness of those instruments, but first, let's take a listen to a portion of a song you created with your gong. This is titled Three Jewels.
want to first ask you about last night's experience. You took us through over 90 minutes of a gong bath with Tibetan bulls and the Tingsha. And when it first started out, it calmed us down and took us what I felt like through the astral realm. And then we went into a space that allowed us to be calm. And in that, while I'm not going to describe what happened with me, in that the music itself got very loud. At one point, it was tremendously loud, and yet we were calm. And some of us wanted to laugh. Others had different experiences. Could you describe the whole sequence of what that was for us? Sure. The, the the process is to uh, first to create a a safety uh, sort of training training the brain or the mind into a point of um, uh, sort of safety net, a place to to feel calm, uh, and that's what the the beginning and, and through most of oh, maybe the first quarter of the gong bath is designed to do to uh, to open us um, physically uh, emotionally mentally uh, in a very calm space a very safe space there's also of course as I mentioned last night there a component of uh, detoxification uh, that is that actually occurs through the uh, polytonal drone uh, vibrations and the patterns which I implement uh, in the playing of the instrument itself. Um, the very louder portion, which is of course very short duration, um, really brings the those overtones and harmonics up into a uh, almost a white noise range. Certainly, part of it is um, the shimmering aspect of it is, and that really is to um, the purpose of that is to break through some of the last resistance, some of the, the final blockages that that we may have um, in the realm of, of our mental state or, or um, habitual patterns. Uh, more of a, a governing space. You know, we there's aspects of our physicality that is that is known as uh, uh, for its storage, sort of a storage house for habitual patterns. Um, that's one of the reasons why so many of us make the same mistake over and over again. We call it different. We look at different names. It may look even different on the offset, but a little bit more analysis will show that we generally make the same sort of decisions and mistakes over and over again. And it could be uh, emotionally or, or uh, mentally or possibly even spiritually. And there is actually in acupuncture, in vibrational medicine, in uh, energy medicine, there's an actual spot on our body that is the storehouse for such patterns. By using the instrument the way I do, I can stimulate that part of our body and
know, very loud portion straight through, as I say in the gong bath, resistance truly is futile at that point. Uh, you can't get out of the way. It's like a tidal wave passing through you. And um, that moves those more stubborn uh, toxins and blockages into a more conceptual area, uh, an equal point that is conceptual in, in nature. And that gives us an opportunity to make better decisions and see our patterns for what they are. And the final portion of the of the experience is designed to bring people into a calming state um, where better decisions and, and uh, more so better decisions can be made in relationship to what may have come up during the louder louder portion. Uh, the louder portion is loud, but truly because of its bio, um, the biochemical aspects of it, of uh, the the uh, sound uh, alterations, the overtones and the harmonics, the the overall polytonal aspect of the of the sound, uh, it never really reaches the decibel levels that would be. Uh, frightening in any way, although some people do bring up a lot of fears during that period. Um, but that should be seen as opportunities. And as you know, the, that portion of the experience is very short anyway. So, uh, But it is necessary and it is an important part. It was pretty incredible. Point. I know it's different for everybody. At one point, I just wanted to laugh out loud. And at another point, during that 90-second, two-minute time of it being very loud, I felt that I was lurching forward, like going through the universe. It does. It, it opens aspects of ourselves that is uh, sometimes closed for, for whatever reason. We talk ourselves out of uh, uh, potential that we, we all have based on other people's belief structures are, are based on our own fears. And during that period, it is so overwhelming, uh, and you are so much a part of it, that um, that a lot of people feel just as you do, that they, they're traveling, astro-traveling through the universe. Some people feel as though they are sinking into the uh, earth. Others feel uh, aspects of levitation. Um, Laughter, of course, is I think the best the best response. Uh, just through the, just getting in touch with the sheer joy that that emerges when we are totally open um, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and, and physically. That's um, that's the ideal. Other people's cry, other people cry, and some people even feel pain. Uh, but it's all. It's whatever it is is reflective of where we are at that moment, um, where we are individually. The gong bath truly is a very unique personal experience, even if there is 50 people in the room. Each person is going to experience it very, very differently. Uh, and I believe the sound does that. It keys to the things that we most need um, to get in touch with. How were you attracted to this in your life and then becoming Buddhist and spreading the teachings around the nation and the planet? That's a rather long story, but uh, needless to say, back in the 70s, late, late 70s, I 
had something of a spiritual um, crisis, and I, I looked to my faith at the time. I was brought up a Roman Catholic. Um, <clears throat> found that it was it it I could find it was lacking for the um, aspect that I was going through. So I studied Eastern philosophies for a number of years, and ultimately uh, stumbled upon Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, and then within the, the realm of Tibetan Buddhism, Buddhism uh, Vajrayana teachings, which essentially, um, it's important to, it's in, I think it's important for me anyway to understand the totality of of Buddhist, Buddhist teachings, the philosophy, um, so that I could better understand about the Vajrayana teachings, which are essentially tells us that we're already Buddhas, that that we know all of this anyway, but what we need to do is find ways of pulling back the veils of illusion and delusion that keeps us stuck in a more mundane and, and suffering point in our lives. Um, and that was the key for me. Um, as I studied Buddhism, uh, I was, long ago I had studied as an engineer and I have that sort of Western mindset where I'm interested in tools and how things work. And that certainly applied to uh, my Buddhist studies. And I found these sacred instruments that are designed consciously through alloy configuration and through um, methods of use to alter consciousness and to open us um, to our greater selves, a greater meaning, or to open us to the, to the greater aspects of ourselves, uh, both physically and and emotionally. Um, so, and through the interconnectedness of all things, which is uh, part of the teaching, of course, um, and even spiritually. Uh, so that that was just an organic. Um, through my interest, it was organically grew that I started using the instruments, the Himalayan instruments, at first to alter consciousness. Um, there's a triad of instruments. There's the Tingshas, as you mentioned, the Gantas, which are also called Vashra bells, and its consort, the Vashra, and the Himalayan bulls. Um, using those to alter consciousness, I suddenly discovered um, over a period of time that there was a physical component to it as well. And then I, in my studies, started to focus on those aspects of the studies that applied to physical healing and, and uh, consciousness growth in relationship to these instruments and uh, why the instruments work tonally uh, that way. So uh, that eventually brought me to the gong that I use, the gong is very, very specific. It's a, it's the Paiste, uh Paiste is the manufacturer. Um, it's the earth, it's the yearly earth gong. Back in the 1970s, a fellow called Gus Gustav, you know, I don't remember his name right now, but he wrote a book called... Um, Consciousness of the spheres, or healing the spheres, or harmony of the spheres, and he used contemporary instrumentation to identify the vibrational signatures of the 
all the astral bodies in our solar system, um, and the Earth being, uh, you know, intimate to us, he identified three vibrational signatures: one on its daily spin through through the universe, and one as it wobbles along its, that spin um, through the zodiac, and then one as it moves around the sun. And the one that moves around the sun was most fascinating to me because uh, that's the 136.1 hertz, um, which is, of course, very, very low. Um, but at 136.1 hertz is the, is the tuning for Eastern instru drum instruments um, of C-sharp. And, and they tune their instruments to that 136.1 because it is it has been identified for literally thousands of years as the vibrational signature of the seed creation syllable or om. In Buddhist teachings, it is said that if you if you can learn if you can open yourself directly to the vibrational signature of om, then you have then essentially you could reach an enlightened state without all the years of study that it that uh, it requires most of us to uh, to gather to to get to that point if at all um, so that was fascinating to me um, and then of course Pisces took that that very low frequency and built uh, octaves upon that uh, resonating at that group that base frequency um, which there are so many octaves in that particular instrument that it then spins off uh, as the octave spin off of the instrument itself, depending on how you play it, of course. Uh, they bounce into each other in the atmosphere around us in the air. And though that bouncing, that vibrational bounce, um, creates overtones, um, which are also rooted within the, the mothering of those octaves, uh, which is, of course, back to the 136.1. So essentially you become uh, a multi-dimensional, you have a multi-dimensional soundscape that is all rooted within the Ohm syllable. Um, and it's it's powerful. It's powerful in, uh, in physically, in altering physical well-being. I've had people have, uh, you know, tumorous growths disappear. I've had uh, hearing return of bone knitting, uh, bone, you know, bone uh, repair and expedited um, uh, peripheral vision and one person returned to a blind eye. Uh, oh, uh, the stories are remarkable and, and there is a lot of science involved too, of course, but, uh, but that's in some ways only mind candy. You know, we, we tell something tell ourselves stories of why these things work so that it, it will work within some sort of logical plane for us. But for me, it's um, it's usually usually such explanations are limited to our parameters of understanding, and I try to get beyond that, or at least my, allow myself to get beyond that if I can. Well, I just think it's fascinating that these tumors that are gone, vision that's returned, states of health that are returned, and that, you said it is because we're returning to our seed state. It doesn't happen for everyone, of course. It, 
you know, I think people who come to Gong Baths come for different reasons. Uh, and some of those reasons that they they emerge or find themselves at a Gong Bath can be so deeply rooted that there's there even the Gong Bath or a series of Gong Baths may uh, only start to shape the foundations of which those problems or those difficulties or those challenges are rooted in. Uh, but it, with that said, you, uh, it, it's hard to ignore when, when stories come back to you that are just extraordinary in nature, uh, and they're frequent in, and, uh, um, in multiple, so it's, it's, it's interesting. A lot more study needs to be done for certain. And to that end, actually, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be in Denison uh, University in Ohio uh, later this month, where uh, I'm teaching an inter interdisciplinary workshops um, and, and sound experiences uh, within that school, which will run the gamut from comparative religions to um, neurosciences, and hopefully we'll be able to gather some uh, more data at that point for empirical data, something blind study sort of things that uh, we can refer to and make it more real for people that need that type of empirical evidence. Because then it will be proven and it'll make those scientists happy. Sure. The skeptics, anyway. I don't think scientists are necessarily skeptics. They're, they're so involved in the process of making things real that uh, sometimes they're a little skeptical. You know, I find that it, Buddhism is a philosophy and not a religion. And Buddha really was uh, a very head of his time scientist. He found a way of observing a natural scientist. He observed the universe at such depths and insights that he his teachings essentially reflect the the quantum level science scientific. Scientific breakthroughs that we're making today uh, in the realm of multi-dimensions, uh, in, in the realm of uh, time studies, and, uh, and even the, the nature of the universe, uh, the deep insights into the nature of the, the very small and the very large are all reflective in in, uh, in Buddhism and in his teaching. So it's. It really is, he, I would have to say that he was uh, a pure scientist who was able to uh, see beyond the obvious. Would you call that enlightenment? And what is enlightenment? Uh, Buddha, the name Buddha means awakened one. And the concept truly is that we are, in Vajrayana Buddhism, as I said, we are all we are all uh, Buddhas. We're all awakened beings that have essentially fallen into a delusional state or an illusional state that is so uh, enriching and so complex um, that we have um, fallen asleep to our awakened being, to our awakened self. We need to waken to our our intrinsic self, our our natural self, which is the state of enlightenment. Now, in 
in the studies, in the teachings, there is layers of awakening. There's layers of, of enlightenment, of course. Um, and the ulti- ultimately, it boils down or, or sifts down into two principal states. One is uh, states of, of awareness within phenomenal time space, uh, where we we can begin to find a path for ourselves that is both compassionate to ourselves and other other beings, other sentient beings, um, and and uh, with wisdom, with a transcendental sort of wisdom that goes well beyond our uh, intellect. And that would be all within the phenomenon. Um, and there, in the teachings, there are levels of, of consciousness, everything from hell beings up to gods and goddesses, that are reflective of those insights. However, they're all still phenomenon, and, and ultimately that's not um, pure enlightenment. Uh, pure enlightenment goes beyond phenomenon. It sort of steps out of the circle of time-space and is non-dualistic in nature. Uh, phenomenon is determined by its dualistic nature. It has to, there has to be more than one point for us to define and understand ourselves and or, or the point that we exist in. So everything is relative, everything is comparative um, uh, within a dualistic universe. And enlightenment, pure enlightenment, is non-dualistic. So it's something that can be experienced directly, but really cannot be analyzed within a dualistic thinking. Uh, and that's what, that's ultimately what nirvana, or ultimately what our true state of being is. Not dualistic, that is. Well, then I need to ask, with what's going on in the world, you think there's an awakening? There definitely is an awakening. Um, I I just received, or I'm about to receive a contract from our government. I, I don't want to go into details right now because I haven't actually received the <laughs> contract, but... Uh, <coughs> um, a, a contract from our government to help create a soundscape uh, for a museum um, uh, application that is rooted in sacred sound. And essentially, uh, it will be the backdrop for uh, for those guided tours where you put on the little earphones and they take you through a museum step by step and explain what you're looking at. Uh, well, the background for that will be essentially um, the the sacred, the healing sacred sound, and it's being used consciously. It's being contracted consciously by people in our government uh, to expose the million plus people that go through this particular museum on a yearly basis to a sound that is healing emotionally and uh, physically. Uh, in nature, in in his awakening, in in its essence. So there are people out there that are consciously that are in power, that are consciously making uh, decisions to help the populace, the rest of the sentient human beings, to to uh, to rise to the occasion, if you will, to 
out of the realms of suffering that we find ourselves in uh, on a spiritual uh, and even a physical uh, NATO fashion. I think the planet is, which is, of course, sentient in nature, um, is giving us, you know, a, a very real wake-up call and, and saying to us in, in profound and tangible ways that uh, way, the way we have been conducting ourselves um, as beings on this planet cannot be sustained and needs to be uh, modified. And that doesn't necessarily mean suffering. But if we don't get the message soon, it will create a crisis situation. And the planet is giving us signs of what those crisis situations could be, uh, would look like. Uh, only in small, localized ways, I think. As we've reached a, a, a level of population on the planet surface and our, our technology and our and our just even our individual abuse of the uh, of the planet and how we and how each of us build in that abuse builds in the numbers that that we occupy the planet with uh, will will reach a, a a state where it could be vastly more critical for each one of us um, so it's 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 like mom saying that you know you need to eat your spinach or you know you're not going to grow big and strong and if you don't then maybe mom is going to shake you up a little bit you know <laughs> and unfortunately that's uh, that's the state we're in people die um, and and our beautiful cities are are destroyed and we're we're thrown into chaos now that doesn't mean that we don't have the capacity and we've always had the capacity, I think, to live in in uh, sympathy and in harmony with our planet. Uh, we first of all we needed to become aware that the planet uh, is a life force in and of itself. And once that awareness is, is is clear, then we can use our wonderful minds, our wonderful uh, ability to change, to create beautiful, even more possibly even more uh, lovely lives for each and every one of us on this planet in harmony with, with, the, with the planet itself. Uh, but it's, we have to have the will to do that, and the planet is shaking us up so that that will is inevitable. Yeah, some say she is giving birth to a new way of life. You mentioned it. Buddha says there's Buddhas within all of us. What does the future look like for you when you look 10 years into the future? Oh, I'm very much an optimist. Um, being um, an amateur scientist, an amateur physicist, I'm aware of the, the, the wealth of opportunity that, that we can use that we, in our technology and in our, in our thinking that could be applied to uh, correct the the difficulties, the suffering that we have on our planet, while still being in uh, tune with nature, because uh, physics is truly a, a physical a, a physical science. It's a science based on on the workings, how the workings of the universe occur. And so, by aligning ourselves with with that method of existence, then we are in tune with the rest of nature. Um, and consequently will 
spin through the cosmos in a, in a uh, productive sort of way. Uh, ultimately, I, I think that it's our responsibility to to stay conscious, to grow uh, spiritually and, and physically and emotionally, um, and to do that in harmony with the rest of the universe. And we can start with our planet. Uh, and I mean, what the future lies, what future lies for the species, what for for the universe, the physical universe as we know it, I have no idea. But it can be an exciting, beautiful place, something vastly more interesting than than what we project in our cinemas, like cowboys and Indians in space, sort of thing. The concept that uh, other species in the universe are here to do us harm, as though we're uh, as though we're keepers of some sort of precious jewel. I, I'm not so sure that any of that is true. I think we're we're all in this together, and whatever the universe is spinning out into to, to be or to become or to evolve into, uh, we're a part of that, and we need to do it in harmony. Can you tell us more about why these Himalayan tools work the way they do? Through my studies, I know the some of the history of particular types of bulls. The Jambadi bulls are are two are, are a group of bulls that were made in two regions along the eastern border of Tibet. Uh, date wise they were there's some indications there's one release that was sold at uh, Christie's in in London that uh, shows a Buddha figure in a temple listening to uh, what is obviously a Himalayan bull. His, his ear is cocked to one side, his hand, the palm of his hand is up as though he had just struck the bull. And that relief was carbon dated to uh, 2nd century. Um, we, there's some evidence that there was a thesis uh, put out by the 4th Dalai Lama to separate the, the uh, metal bulls from the begging bulls. Uh, and from bowls that are used for eating, um, so that they could be used in uh, for the purposes they were designed for, which is more sacred uh, purposes. Uh, and that would put that would that would be another date marker of about a thousand years. So we know that the, at least the Jambadi bowls, the ones that I know mostly about, there there are other types of bowls, and then there's sub uh, stratas or sub subcategories of those bowls. Uh, but I can talk with some definitive uh, knowledge of the of the gem bodies. A lot of the knowledge has been lost or at least hidden uh, for various reasons. Uh, of course, the Chinese invasion of Tibet in the 1950s, whether they like to call it a liberation or, or not, uh, mm -hmm. destroyed a great deal. It was al almost the Crusades of our modern day, destroying things as, and cultures as it goes, and continues today, of course. Um, so a lot was lost there. A lot was um, uh, in, in shroud of the um, of the Tibetan culture itself that kept itself separate from the the rest of the world. 
uh, until quite contemporary times. It, um, and in, within that tradition, there are aspects of termas, they're called, or jewels of knowledge that are buried and, and uh, hidden away for future generations based on the thought that uh, the species may not be prepared for those teachings at the time the teachings were created. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons and factors of why there is so little that um, that is known about this sort of technology. And in this ancient technology, what are these bowls made of? They're made of a seven-metal alloy that is uh, it's abundant in the Himalayan region. Some of them are precious metals as far as we're concerned, gold and silver being the best example. But there's, um, I don't have all seven readily available in my mind, but there is lead and there's uh, tin. Uh, what is the most precious of the seven metals as far as the Tibetans are concerned, though, is the iron, and it is pure iron. And the only economical source of pure iron on the planet, even today, uh, is uh, from meteorites. Not all meteorites are, are pure iron, but it, it is a good source of it, and there is it, there's seemingly a, something of uh, a, a good resource for that in the Himalayas. It is the rift of the world, after all. So the uh, the Tibetans see it as um, the most precious of metals, and it's referred to as sky metal. The metals are all soft enough to smelt down in an open pit fire. Um, most of the, or if not all of the older older bowls have little inclusions in the forms of surface cracks and the like. Uh, this is due to the open pit smelting. The ashes, there's ash in the air, and as the metal is being cooled, uh, ash might float down and, and become a part of the cooling metal and cause a slight inclusion along the surface. That's one of the ways you can check to see if a bowl is actually a uh, older bowl or a, a reproduction of some sort. One of many. There's, it's not conclusive, but it's certainly a, a telltale. The bowls were uh, made into a sort of a pancake mixture of metal and then pounded over forms, uh, like wooden wooden forms and stone forms, to into tuning and into shape, depending on the type of bowl that was being made. And that is de determined upon what the bowl was to be used for, either uh, for meditation in the form of direct transcendent wisdom or um, or for physical, for some sort of physical healing. Um, and as they, as they were being shaped, the the monks were chanting mantras uh, based on Sanskrit, which is a, a, a sacred language um, in tune with the energy fields of the of the body and therefore the the earth and even by extension um, the universe at large. And that those those chanting that that chanting is is uh, directed towards what seems to be uh, sets of of bowls. Um, in 88, there was a, a, an interview with a Tibetan monk who um, was willing to, to speak in 
Kathmandu about the bowls, and he referred to that uh, the set making of Jambani bowls, which were made in on the eastern border of Tibet. Um, if you could find a set of of nine, I believe he said at the time, uh, he thought it would be priceless because the the sets have all been broken up since since then. But why I mention that is because the mantra that was sung to the set of bulls or the grouping of bulls for whatever purpose they were being used for um, will be then etched on the, on the, along the edge sometimes on the inside but mostly along the outer edge of the of the bowl to carry that just sort of a, a symbol, symbol to carry the, the mantra forward for that particular set so you can find mantra bowls um, or bowls that have that mantra on or a mantra on them. They can be, um, you know, they're they're very um, uh, they can be very old, and so the the mantra could be written in Sanskrit, which is oftentimes you find it that way. But even in Pali, which is a language that preceded uh, Sanskrit in that part of the world. Uh, and has a very different look to it. And then there's different dialects and things of that nature. So oftentimes it's a little hard to determine exactly what the mantra is. Sometimes it's just a few syllables, and sometimes it's, it's quite a few, a whole sentence or a statement or a dedication, perhaps. The, why that's, all of that is interesting is because the... Um, some folks believe, and I've, I've certainly... Um, have seen indications that it's true that within the the playing of the instruments, the mantras can actually come forth and uh, either echoing in your in your own mind or reflected in the uh, sound that the instruments are making. And what are some of these mantras? Well, the, the the mantra that many of us know, the one that is associated with the all-compassionate Buddha, is, of course, Om Mani Padme Om, which is a very powerful mantra. Uh, it's fairly common in, in the West, which is, is great, uh, but that is the mantra of the Buddha of all compassion um, that uh, intercedes or acts as a, as a guardian, acts as a guide for, um, for the betterment of all sentient beings. So that, that alone is a very powerful mantra, and we find that, certainly. And the other ones uh, oftentimes have elements of om or the seed syllable in it, which is a Sanskrit syllable that's easily recognized. Um, but there's other, there's lots of things that, uh, I, I'm not a scholar of Sanskrit, so I, I couldn't really say, or Pali for that matter. But um, as I say, they, some of these mantras are, are very, very long, obviously uh, uh, focused on some sort of very specific energy. Fascinating that the ancient times could create that and have it come around into popularity these days. Yeah, yeah. It well it spins forward into the ages. I find that there the t Tibetans in general and Buddhism in general has a different concept of time. Uh, they think of time as being something that is uh, as of, of a continuous uh, statement that precedes long 
beyond, before and long after the, anyone's specific uh, flickering in of, of a candle, you know, the, well, our lifetimes are so insignificantly small in relation to the uh, overall life of the of the planet and the and, and of the universe and of the solar system. You know, it's just it, it, we're just we're less than a grain of sand on a very huge beach. But on the other hand, if we have uh, um, a idea, uh, a Tuku's idea of continuation. Um, then we can draw upon a not only this lifetime but previous lifetimes up to you know millions and billions of lifetimes um, and essentially I think that's when they when they're making these sacred instrumentations a sacred sacred moments time space whether whether whatever uh, character it might take whether it's a bull or contra tingshaw. Uh, some other, some other esoteric instrument, or, or um, a representation in the form of statuary or something like that. It's really designed more for a continuation of experience, uh, well beyond uh, a human's lifetime. And uh, they're sometimes they're seated and, and actually hidden for for centuries, uh, because there's been a lot of cases of Tibetan Book of the Dead, for instance, was was lost to society uh, eight or nine hundred years uh, until it was found again, purposely because Padmasambhava decided that society wasn't at large, the, the species at large was not prepared for that teaching, uh, and wouldn't be for some generations, and so he hid it in a pillar of the first monastery, a Tibetan monastery, to be built in Tibet, and was only then found some eight hundred. Feeding the future. Feeding the future. You spoke of a teaching that says the universe is in constant motion, that it's constantly changing, that it's destroying and creating, phasing in and out of things, and that is actually creating life. We can see that to be true in, in our studies of photons, uh, in the likelihood of of matter existing within time space as we um, as we know it, um, and we and that at a very small, even the tiniest molecule of existence is vibrating, usually in a dance with another molecule, um, which and in that dance, um, magic happens, life happens, change happens, the universe is, is born. Uh, so using that that natural aspect of what it is to be alive, uh, sound is is doing it. Uh, sacred sound, in particular, is is using that um, that stasis, that intrinsic uh, building block of of existence, to bring it into a realm where we can access it and, and work within our individualities. So it really, it helps remove the veil that separates us from source and all that is. Exactly. And it, even that is, in my thinking, um, you know, I teach vibrational, vibrational medicine or vibrational teach, uh, vibrational uh, uh, changing, altering, uh, sacred sound. Um, 
I would rather not refer to it as medicine or, or even um, any other modality of healing because it's um, then it would bring it into parameters that might limit it in some way. Um, but I think I think that the we 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 can describe it any way we want to make it real for us or make put it into a a realm of understanding. But ultimately we're dealing I believe we're dealing with forces here that are that are um, beyond the phenomenon uh the phenomenal experience. It takes us into our 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 source non new our, our source in the sense of our non dualistic aspects of who we are, the the um, the Buddha self, the the enlightened self. Which, as I said before, cannot cannot be contained within phenomena and time space itself. It has to be something other. Uh and is something. Now with that said, I would have to say as as individuals, as personalities, uh, there are ways of using vibration that are not necessarily as um, productive as others. I think, in certainly in my life, um, there is uh, a lot of examples of how sound can be used in a very destructive way, and just like anything else, it's dualistic. It's you know you can use nuclear power for very positive um, healing purposes, which we do, and and then you can also use the same power source to annihilate the planet, um, which I think most of us would be a negative. <laughs> so, uh, the same thing with, with sound. Um, for instance, I've been performing and teaching sacred sound in the form of gong baths since, you know, for 15 years or so, something of that nature. And at some point, it became clear to me that other people were doing, uh, using the term gong bath and doing bond baths uh, out of their heart, I'm sure out of very sincere uh, wonderment and um, doing whatever they felt they could do in the best way they could and for the best purposes. But then people would come to me and say, gee, I, I've done a gone bath someplace else um, and it wasn't like this. And it was in, and in knowing that Sound, even sacred sound, can be used in a in a way that is um, not necessarily uh, supportive of health, or not necessarily um, um, easy for people to access. Uh, Over powerful, for instance. How much how much power do you do do you use, even if you have it available to you? Um, that I applied for in. 2008 and received a trademark on the term gong bath, not to not to uh, make it my own so much as to separate what I do, what I do in my gong baths from what other people might be doing in what they refer to as a gong bath, just to just so that somehow what not and again what what a person might be doing is might is might be brilliant and vastly more more productive than what I do um, 
the opposite direction. So I just wanted to separate it in some way, and, uh, and so that there should be some parameters of, of quality control, perhaps, uh, under mm -hmm. the same same term. Uh, and the same thing is applied can be applied with uh, the Himalayan instruments. The uh, Himalayan bowls can be picked up off the shelf for good quality. Ancient bowl could be very effective uh, without any training or any knowledge whatsoever. And for some people, brilliantly effective if they're if they can be open to their inner physician, their inner knowing, the inner wisdom. Uh, but for most of us, we're not, and um, it, and it's a matter of effectiveness to with some training uh, and with some study. A Himalayan bowl could be vastly more effective than for someone who just knocks it around in their on their altar space without that training. So, uh, that's that's my position on, on sacred child in general. Do these Himalayan instruments relate in any way to Shambhala in your teachings or in your knowledge? Shambhala is uh, is a state of mind that, and maybe even even a state of uh, of being within the physical universe. Uh, the but it's that it's what we've been talking about essentially accessing or we accessing the aspect of ourselves that is non-dualistic or is transcendent in uh, from the physical aspect of ourselves. And that isn't to say that there's anything wrong with the physical. In fact, the physical can be used within Vajrayana that teaches us to be as fully human and open to life as we can possibly be without denying, denying without uh, without uh, sacrificing or ourselves in some way. Uh, but to do it in a conscious way that is full of wisdom and Passion for all, for the betterment of all sentient beings, um, and it's it, it's reflected in mindfulness. And I think that's what Shambhala is all about. It's a mindful way of passing through time space that is of benefit to both ourselves and all other beings. Tell us about your DVD, The Dharma of Vibrational Healing. Yeah, that was my newest act. Uh, it's based on a talk, a teaching that I gave, an uh, intro teaching that I gave at uh, the Sacred Sound Healing Conference, International Sacred Sound Healing Conference in Santa Fe. And the uh, and there's a gong bath holding a, a, a studio piece beneath it. So, and it's, it's a visual, also on top of that, it's a visual... Um, tapestry of uh, that is a, akin or attuned to the to the uh, conversation or to the, the the teaching itself. So what you have is uh, an hour long uh, introduction to sacred sound with uh, with a sacred sound tapestry beneath it and a, a stunning visual. Um, um, effects the visual aspects from different parts of the world, sacred sites and, and different uh, gong baths that I've done all over. Uh, the, the 
the maker of the of the visual aspects of it, um, and I mean the whole DVD really is is quite a brilliant uh, uh, composer um, of of such things, and she she's really gone out all out to produce this wonderful piece. What's really interesting uh, from my point of view is not only you could use it as a teaching because of of the narrative, you could use it as a meditative quality because you can turn the narrative off and just watch the visuals with the sound and it's also was done in surround sound so if you have a really good uh, um, stereo system or a really good set of earphones you can turn it onto a surround sound sort of setting it's very close to being uh, what you might experience in a in a live performance although a live performance can never really be produced it uh, it gets it gets pretty close. So your own private gong bath in your home, as close as it can be to live and in person. Do you have a special price for that DVD for listeners of this show? Yes, I wanted to mention that. Um, I I the, the, the DVD sells for twenty dollars, and what I would like to do is offer to uh, anyone who goes to my website um, and purchases the DVD, there's a commentary when you purchase, when you purchase. and if you mention the name of your program uh, or the radio, the radio show itself, then I will send the DVD anywhere in the United States, uh, uh, shipping free. And so that's, that was the, uh, that was something I wanted to do just as uh, something special for your listening um, public. Great. All right. So anyone who wants that, it's $20 free of shipping charges. So that's at Sacred Sound Gong Bath. SacredSoundGongBath.com. Okay. So www.SacredSoundGongBath.com. You must use the www. Wonderful. That's going to be a magical experience. I know I'm going to go grab my copy, too. So thank you so much, Richard. Thank you for being here, and enjoy your travels. And we'll look forward to you coming back to the Boulder area, because we can't wait for the next gong bath coming up in June. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. And I thank you, too, for listening. Please share this program so that we can get this important information out to the rest of the world. I now leave you with music from the universe. Brought to you by AcousticHealth.com. This is music literally created by the universe as musical notes were assigned to mathematical equations. Take a listen to the music and have a beautiful day. Beautiful day.